Attitude survey. Almost a third of military personnel say morale is low. Are our soldiers being discriminated against? There's no doubt that it's happening. Um, it's happening to a minority, but it's certainly happening, and I think all of us would agree that that's unacceptable. Prison breakouts in Pakistan and Iraq, the terrorists' newest threat. And strike up the band. Army musicians face a big shakeup. The annual report gauging morale in the armed forces has been published. 30% or almost a third of army personnel say morale is low. Last year, the figure was 26%. The Continuous Attitude Survey carried out by the MOD monitors areas including pay, career prospects and accommodation. Well, joining me now is Louise Simpson, who is the Evidence Director from the Army Families Federation. Hello, Louise. You're at the sharp end of all this. Have you noticed an increase in unhappy soldiers? We have indeed. In fact, um, last year we introduced a sort of another category into our database, which was sort of morale, um, so that we could sort of try and record people who perhaps didn't have a specific thing to say, but just just generally felt that you know that they weren't you know, morale was much lower than than, than they they had it had previously been. What are the main issues? Well, I think you know redundancy, um, you know, is all, is always very unnerving, um, and it, you know it generates a lot of uncertainty. So I think you know the, the service chiefs quite understand that during this period morale will be low while, while you know we sort ourselves out and we get down to the, the numbers that we need to um, I think that uh, you know that people are concerned about lots of things while we are reducing in size um, we're getting sort of families talking to us about double tripping hat triple hatting of, of jobs uh, people being unable to take the leave that they're entitled to. Uh, they're concerned about the new employment model. It says we're going to be more stable, but is that really possible? Um, so they've got, you know, how will the reserves work? What happens after Afghanistan? Uh, you know, housing issues, uh, moving schools. You know, while well, there's a new admissions code, uh, there's still sort of some problems with getting children into the schools that they feel that they ought to be able to get them into. So it's a whole wide range of, of issues that families continue to talk to us about. Well, also with me today is our defence analyst, Christopher Lee, and the director of the Royal United Services Institute for Defence and Security Studies, Professor Michael Clark. Hello to you both. Uh, Professor Clark, against the backdrop of uh, the nearing end of combat operations in Afghanistan, presumably morale will take even more of a hit within the armed forces. Well, uh, as Louise said, it's all about uncertainty. And uh, after Afghanistan, then the army ought to be able to be more certain uh, about what its, <clears throat> what its plans are and the things that really matter to the service personnel repeatedly come out as housing and education. It's the, those are the two really key issues that make them feel what they feel about the army. Also, anecdotally, whenever I speak to the soldiers, I ask them about morale, and they often say, oh, yeah, morale's not very good. And I say, how is your morale? They say, oh, my morale's fine, but other people I don't think are so good. It, there's a perception that morale is bad, but individual soldiers, unless they've got a particular grievance, which often centres on something specific like education, uh, their morale is pretty high. But, but what is affecting them is a sense that, well, is the army long-term career for me or is it something I should be keeping my options open for earlier than I might otherwise so people are looking to to leave the army when they're say 28 or 32 instead of staying in until they're 42 or 45 that's the issue and that's really caused I think as Louise said by a perception of uncertainty which is going to get worse before it gets better over the next two or three years. Christopher um, the point that uh, that Michael was making there that when you ask individuals whether their morale is bad they say oh no mine isn't um is the army any different to the rest of the country? 
I think it's different in as much that it is in the public eye for a long time. Go back to... This is the army today. 2010 cuts. Everybody knew about cuts. We're at war, longest war, etc., in the modern army's history. So the army's being told it's getting cuts. Uh, today, it's being told it's getting more cuts. It's coming out of uh, one of the big operations. But if you go back, 1956, after Suez operation, army, these army figures about how did people feel about their services, moaning like heck. 1960, after conscription, modernising the army, same thing sort of happened. You go to 72 after Bloody Sunday, and people didn't react, the public didn't react as the army thought it should have done, Bloody Sunday. There was a lot of moaning in the army, but mainly among the infantry. Same thing happened 79 after Warren Point. People don't understand this, but then they get on with it. But then you get to the basics. In the 1960s, it was accommodation, it was food, it was how the families were looked after, especially when guys were away. That was the sort of... that really was the the whole perception but fundamentally i cannot remember a time in ships and in the army not sure about the raf ships in the army when soldiers and sailors didn't drip but you go to the individual as mike says and says well what's the problem uh, well louise um, i suppose this is a throws up a few difficulties for you how are you able to help um well we can help in a number of ways I and mean, if it's um a specific problem we can help at local level to try and sort out a housing or education uh, problem. Um, at, at, at a more senior level we, we do things like the Defence Select Committee so we gave a considerable amount of evidence um, for the education one that's just that's just run. Um, so we will engage with the chain of command but also with, with the MOD and in ministers and other departments to sort of highlight trends of, of unhappiness and, uh, and where we think things can be you know, corrected especially using the Armed Forces Covenant. All right, Louise Simpson from the Army Families Federation, thank you for your time today. Now to an issue which could also affect morale. Dozens of soldiers and veterans have claimed that discrimination against them is getting worse. Now the Labour Party is getting together with several military charities to work out new ways to support service personnel. They want to make it illegal to turn away servicemen and women from hotels and pubs. I've been speaking to Professor Sir Simon Wesley of the King's Centre for Military Research. Well, there certainly is evidence that this is happening. I mean, you know, I don't think we should uh, exaggerate how often it's happening, but our study shows that about one in five of the current generation report that someone has had a go at them at some time because they're in the services. I mean, what have a go means is uh, open to dispute. But nevertheless, that's a very similar figure to um, what was found in the Ashcroft study. So I think there's no doubt that it's happening um, it's happening to a minority, but it's certainly happening, and I think all of us would agree that that's unacceptable. And the Ashcroft study, which you mentioned, was talking about uh, the numbers of uh, personnel who've said that they've been discriminated against, and I'm wondering why you think that might be, what might cause it? Well, first of all, I don't think that this is due to um, the particular issues around Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, our study and plenty of others have shown that the vast majority of the public, even when many oppose those wars, as, as we know some do, are perfectly capable of distinguishing between their objection uh, to the wars and uh, their support for those who've had to fight those wars. So I don't think that's the main issue. I think it's a rather broader issue about our, you know, um, ambivalence and also kind of lack of knowledge of what it really means to be in the services at the moment. The Labour Party is putting forward the idea of legislation to make it illegal to discriminate against service personnel. I'm thinking about the situations where people might be turned away from pubs or clubs. Um, is that fair? Is that the answer? 
Oh, well, that's a question for politicians. I deal with the facts and figures. Let's leave legislation to them. I, I think what I'd like to see is, is a rather broader understanding of why this is. And I think it's because, you know, an awful lot of people have this strange dichotomy of views about service personnel. On the one hand, you know, we use glibly the phrase, they're all heroes. Well, you know, the folks who are watching this know very well that's not the language that you use and it's not the language that you feel comfortable with. And the other time, then the public, almost in the same breath, then see everyone as a victim. And we know that that's wrong as well. Uh, one or two people certainly, you know, do develop mental health problems and, and, and so on and so forth, the result of their service. The majority don't. There was a very good quote from the commander of Tupara who said something like, we don't need pity, we don't need sympathy, but what we do need is the public's understanding. And that I'd like to see us work on. Whether or not you need legislation for that, I don't know. That's not for me. To what extent do you think that the heightened awareness of post-traumatic stress disorder is actually backfiring and making people very wary, perceiving soldiers as rowdy? Yeah, I don't think it's to do with the heightened awareness of PTSD. And I, I do think, however, it's to do with the, the blanket coverage, as it were, of the adverse effects of service life, which is quite right. I mean, you know, I work for the charity Combat Stress some of the time, and uh, it's important that we do highlight that. That was Professor Sir Simon Wesley from the King Centre for Military Research. Um, Christopher, this so-called discrimination, anything new in it? I don't think there is anything new in it. I mean, I can, I mean, historically, you could probably go back to the 18th century and the Napoleonic Wars or something like that and find that how soldiers were, were, were considered and always getting beaten up. Certainly in 1944... Um, there was an attempt in, in, in Parliament, uh, which was led by, of all people, uh, the finance guys, uh, Stafford Cripps, and saying, we ought to go up to our soldiers, we ought to go up to our service people and say, thank you very much for what you are doing and what you are about to do. I hear the same messages today. But if you think about it, you know, a young serviceman, you talk about people getting into fights, being assaulted, uh, being uh, kicked out of bars, don't come in here in bars, certainly don't come in uniform, and a haircut is quite often a uniform. Um, the average age of a soldier is what, Mike? The uh, early, very early twenties. There's sort of that sort of uh, sort of age where other people, disaffected youths, youths who, who are perhaps not doing the sort of things that they would have expected to do uh, in life, in, in civilian life, um, they think we'll have a go. Professor Clark, what do you think of Labour's uh, idea of making a special case of the armed forces and making it illegal to discriminate against them? Bad idea, um, <clears throat> because it, it, it highlights the problem and it, 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 in a sense, it gives the armed forces protection they honestly don't need. Uh, it be, because I mean, it, it, presumably they might not even welcome it themselves. Exactly, they wouldn't welcome it. They wouldn't because it would make it look as if uh, they had a unique problem in society as opposed to just being part of the fabric of society. And it is the case. I mean, you talk to, to uh, senior officers, <clears throat> you take the you know the, the young paras, for instance, and these are pretty rough guys and, and they, they're trained to be rough. They're trained to be extremely cohesive in their unit, to stand up for each other in all circumstances. And I remember one of the uh, commanders of the, uh, the uh, parachute brigade saying to me, the task we have is to is to harness that without killing it you know we don't want to suppress that sense of collective aggression because that's what we unleash on the enemy but we've got to harness it and it's quite difficult to harness um, when they're in colchester every friday night or wherever it is they are but it is it's part of the ethos and it's a delicate balance between that that sort of controlled 
sense of aggression and the, the sort of social skills that need to go with people when they're uh, away from their bases. Christopher? Yeah, Mike, you, you just said, if they're on, in Colchester on Friday night, think about the army. They're in Colchester, they're in Catterick, they're in Aldershot. They are, they are a collective groups. Guys come back, say, from a tour in Afghanistan. Back here in comfortable United Kingdom, the world looks different. Mm. And there is that sort of three or four months of you have to sort of quieten down, sort of manage to get down. And anybody who looks at you the wrong way, perhaps they shouldn't. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, we ask why prison breaks are on the rise and changes to military music could mean fewer marches and more muse. PFBS Sit Rep. This week, more than 200 prisoners escaped in a Taliban-led jailbreak in Pakistan. 30 of the men freed were described as hardcore militants. Last year, hundreds of inmates were freed in a similar attack in a neighbouring province. And most are still believed to be at large. And last week, we heard of a similar operation believed to have been carried out by al-Qaeda at Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq. So is this seemingly effective method of boosting terrorist numbers likely to spread further? Our reporter in Afghanistan, Jeff Mead, has been Looking at the prison breakouts and joins me now from Camp Bastin. Hello, Jeff. How much do we know about the Pakistan breakout this week? Well, given the gravity of it, it's been widely reported regionally as well as internationally. It happened uh, in the early hours of Tuesday morning, about 150 miles from the Afghan border, in a regional prison housing some 5,000 inmates in a city called Dera Ismail Khan, which is quite close to the Pashtun tribal area, and that's uh, a, a part of the world where the Pakistani government's writ holds little sway. It had all the hallmarks of a very well-planned and organised attack and echoed that similar mass breakout of 17 months ago. A number of militants, estimates vary from dozens to over a hundred. Some of them disguised in police uniforms launched uh, a number of coordinated attacks from all sides using automatic weapons, rocket-propelled grenades, mortars and suicide bombers. They blasted open the main gate of this hundred-year-old jail and while fire teams held off the government force's response, others entered the jail freeing some 250 prisoners. It was a battle that went on for several hours and there were reports that 13 had died, among them six police officers. And how are the authorities expected or supposed to deal with these kind of onslaughts? Well, they've started, but they have a, a great deal to confront. Um, at the heart of this seems to be a, a, a very, very blatant intelligence failure, a brazen failure is how the provincial chief ministers call, called it, um, because there was a warning given to them sometime ahead of this attack uh, about the raid. Um, so it's demonstrated the, the failure, the weak control that the state has. The Taliban, no doubt, it timed it to exploit the recent wave of violence that's welcoming the new Pakistani government. And I think this has exposed once again how Islamabad seems to possess neither the capability, the competence, nor perhaps even the will to rein in the militants and address this kind of attack. Um, they have taken some specific action, a number of high-value targets at other jails, including the murder of American journalist Daniel Pearl, uh, have been moved to uh, tighter security holding, and uh, the, the guards and security generally has been stepped up, and not surprisingly, Kate, several prison officials have been suspended. Christopher, um, from the point of view of the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, is this very effective for them, these releases? Yeah, it's effective in three ways. I mean, one, it got the guys out. Two, people are being able to be told now, you see, we don't forget you. And the other thing is, look at the, look at the guard force. Uh, there's going to be an attack like this. It's not such a surprise. People know it's happening. A lot of places, the guards are not going to do anything about it. These guys have got to go home at night. 
and they hope they can go home at night. But don't forget, this is this is spread right across, not just in Pakistan. Uh, look at Libya. In the past eight months, something like a th- close on a thousand prisoners have been let out or have been pulled pulled from uh, Libyan jails. This is not just a it's not just a one-off. So, uh, Michael Clark, not a coincidence, any of this? No, I mean most of these things are inside jobs, uh, one way or another, and I'm sure the uh, the case in Darajah um, Khan will prove to be an inside job, as it almost certainly was in Abu Ghraib. And what it reflects is the is the degree of sympathy which the insurgents in different countries can command, <clears throat> and it's a mixture of of uh, sympathy and terror, as, as Christopher says. Uh, I mean, if they can terrorise, you know, local guards who are not paid very much anyway into looking the other way, then so much the better. And so it's a tip of an iceberg, which is a pretty nasty iceberg. And when you look at something like the jailbreak that happened in Yemen, the consequences of these kind of things can be quite staggering, can't they? Yes, they can, because uh, 200 people back out, as it were, into the insurgency, uh, you know, 200 relatively dangerous people who are quite well trained, that can give a boost to all insurgent operations. If you get three or four people out, that's a political victory. But if you get 200 out, that can actually be a game changer on the ground. Christopher, anything that can be done to prevent this kind of thing from repeating? Uh, a short answer in, in, in where we are now, no. There isn't anything you can do. You get intelligence, and as Jeff said, oh, the accusation is going to be it was an intelligence failure. It's, it's not so much as an intelligence failure, it's, not, it's an unwillingness to do anything with the intelligence that you have got. What you do, in theory, you would say, OK, let's go and break up the jail. Let us go and say we've got a 1,000 guys in there. Let's go and put them round in about eight different places. That's a heck of a security operation. The other thing, that, and the most important part of it, this is operating in a society that really doesn't go along with the sort of rules that we would like, you know, from Winston Prison and uh, play in our own sort of society, and that's the biggest problem. Politically, nobody can do anything about it, because the whole thing is split, and allegiances are split. All right. Jeff Mead in Afghanistan, thank you. Gentlemen, stay with us. This is BFBS Cigarette. Army Music is undergoing its single largest reorganisation in 20 years. Military bands are to be directed to play less of this. And more of this. The core of Army Music thinks soldiers might relate more to the sort of pop music they might have on their iPods rather than traditional military music. Well, Nigel Ellis is the chairman of the International Military Music Society and joins us now from our studio in Ipswich. Christopher Lee and Michael Clark from Lucy are still with me as well. Um, Nigel, do you think there's a place for both types of music? Oh, yes, I think so. Uh, I think there is a place for uh, music on parade, uh, and there is a place for music uh, for the what is, after all, uh, the major customer for the Corps of Army Music, and that is the, um, the uh, soldiers um, uh, in all parts of the world. So, yes, I, agree, I do believe there is a place for, the, for this music. It, it's the balance that I think the Corps of Army Music has got to get right, uh, because... After all, um, the general public do like to see and hear military bands on parade and in concert, uh, and it's the general public who, in the end, pays the bill. So the balance needs to be right. And as part of these changes, there's going to be some mergers. A good thing or not? 
Uh, well, from a <laughs> from someone who who has enjoyed the tradition of military music in this country, I think it's very sad to see bands go. But I live in the real world, the same as the the rest of society does, and it's impossible for us to retain the number of bands that we've had over the um, over the last hundred years. Uh, I, I think the, it's encouraging to know that the core of army music is not going to be reduced in any great number, uh, and indeed the, the number of bands doesn't appear to be reducing greatly. But I, I do believe that in the end we have to accept that times are changing and we cannot any longer afford the luxury that we enjoyed in, earlier in the last century. Christopher, what role has music played over the years in war? You've only got to look at paintings. You've only got to look at the fact that each regiment, for example, has its own regimental march to understand it's so important. I mean, it's not just a question of uh, serenading uh, on, a, on a mess night or anything like this, but you begin with the band or band's men of some form leading leading an army into battle. Uh, but, you know, if, you, if anybody who's seen this sort of not quite a mythical figure of the piper leading the Highlanders into battle. I mean, mostly they lost them, but, but that doesn't matter. They lost the Piper as well. But that is a figure of arousing. It rouses a sort of a battalion right behind the musician. It's the one thing you can hear above all the noise of battle is music, and it's, it's usually a lone um, musician. Michael Clark, you a fan of military music? Mm. Oh, yes, I've heard a lot of it uh, on, on and off. There's the stirring music that you hear. I, 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 but there's the other side of it as well. I, I was at a wonderful uh, passing out parade at Sandhurst in 2010, and they played the military bands as they marched past. And then it was when uh, uh, Prime Minister Cameron, it was his first time at Sandhurst, taking the salute. And when he left this, the, the podium to walk across the parade ground, they suddenly broke into a James Bond medley. <laughs> it was the funniest thing I've ever seen. And he couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> Everyone was killing themselves laughing. It was wonderful. Uh, Nigel Ellis, I mean, what would the, what would the military be without music well I, I think I think the military would be um, much poorer in the eyes of uh, of the British public uh, I'm not at all sure that morale would would not plummet uh, if uh, if there were not the bands um, uh, as as has been said we need the parades we need the uplift uh, we see it in um, in homecoming parades. I think if there was no music, uh, it would be very poor. And I think also uh, the soldiers uh, in uh, Afghanistan and other places in the world would also be very, very poorly off if they didn't have the groups coming in to play for them as they do at the moment. Christopher. Nigel, there's another thing we mustn't forget. These are not toy soldiers. Uh, no, absolutely. These are guys that go in and help with Kazivak in the most su supreme uh, circumstances. So, you know, they may be able to spit down the end of a bit of brass, but they can also do the job when they get on the ground. Yes, indeed, and in fact, a number spit of Spit down them... a bit of brass. I think that's putting it a bit too harshly, yeah, Christopher. Well, that's coming from a flute player. <laughs> a, good a good proportion of the Corps of Army Music have seen active service in Afghanistan, uh, so it's not just going out to play music. They go out with a rifle in one hand and their mu uh, instrument in the other, so... OK, Nigel, I'm going to put you on the spot here. What's your, your favourite piece of military music? <laughs> well, I couldn't possibly uh, pick one of the many fabulous <sighs> marches around, but I will pick one. Go I will on. pick one that shows the, the absolute expertise of our musicians, and it's by the late Lieutenant Colonel Trevor Sharp, and it's a piece called Fanfare and Soliloquy for Band. Christopher? Oh, there's only one piece of military music. <laughs> Hearts of Oak. <laughs> 
Hearts of Oak. <laughs> Michael, Maybe the Royal Marine Band playing Hearts of Oak or Sunset. Just the tears in the eyes. Michael, Michael Clark, you, you fancy humming along uh, your oh, favourite yeah, bit? No, no, my, mine's a more modern piece. It's, a, it's a, called High on the Hill. It's plaintive, it's haunting. Whenever I've heard it, it uh, displays the crowd goes really quiet and very reflective. It's very moving. All right, Nigel Ellis from the International Military Music Society. Thank you for your time today. Some revealing government documents have been released today under the 30-year rule. They show that Margaret Thatcher secretly considered using troops to transport coal around the UK in the event of a miners' strike and also that an address to the nation was written for the Queen in the event of a nuclear war. Christopher, I understand you were actually involved in the preparation of that script back in 1983. Yeah, what happened? I mean, I didn't write the script what happened is that uh, i was up at easingwald and under which was then under the command of uh, the late uh, air marshal sir leslie maver and he called me one day and another couple of guys he said listen wartime broadcasting thing because we were doing a scenario for what would happen in the time of a nuclear war and uh, over a place a mythical place called naptonshire i think <laughs> it was and he said where is the role of the monarch in this the monarch would have to say something uh, because the Americans had just produced something for their president, you know, my uh, God bless America thing. Uh, and so we wrote a Queen's speech, what we thought should be in it. And I think there were three or four of us, and they went sent, sent into uh, London. That went to Downing Street. That went to the, uh, the Queen's private sector and eventually went to the Queen. Um, it wasn't until uh, this morning that I realised that what was in... The Queen's speech compared with the waffle that I wrote. <laughs> and Michael Clark, um, also been revealed that the UK sent a weapon designed to dazzle Argentine pilots during the Falklands War. Sounds very James Bond. Worth a try. Uh, Not used, though. No, that's right. I mean, the, 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 we, we, were, we were trying lots of things at the time, and uh, we were genuinely worried about their capabilities uh, with their uh, Mirage aircraft. Uh, I mean, they had some older Skyhawks and so on, but, you know, their Mirages, their French aircraft, their, uh, uh, their uh, Exocet missiles, they were a genuine worry. And I mean, I all French, was going all French. Yeah, but the joke that was going around at the time was that the Mary Rose, you know, the uh, Henry VIII's uh, warship was raised in the July of that year, and they said if it had been raised a couple of months early, it would have sent that as well. <laughs> Christopher, and any surprises in the releases? I think the uh, yeah, I think there are surprises. Uh, for, uh, for, for one, was the use of the army. Uh, if, if put yourself back into the eighty two, eighty three sort of period, uh, the Thatcher government just got into a, into its second second breath, having been voted in first time in in, in seventy nine, were obsessed with the idea of strikes. And this was the force where Thatcher was determined to bring down the miners' strike. And that Indeed. was, uh, whether it was in the north of England, the Midlands, or down uh, in, in the South Wales coalfield coal at uh, uh, Lewis Merthyr. Bring in the army. You, the idea was the police would be able to co uh, cordon off the miners. But while that was happening in Thames Valley, in, in, in Wessex, etc., et of course, crime was going to go up because policemen were up there earning overtime to do their patio doors. <laughs> so she said, that has to finish. We bring in the army. Remember, army used to drive the green goddesses, the, the fire engines. Indeed. Use the army Indeed. for anything, whether it's foot and mouth or whatever. And that was the important thing. Bring in the army. We, they actually wanted to buy the land next to the coal fields so the army could operate sort of coal shifting operations. And now to some sad news this week. The BBC correspondent and long-time sit-rep contributor John Lyon has died. He was diagnosed with a brain tumour earlier this year while covering the unrest in Egypt. Here's a reminder of John in action, reporting from a troubled Libya two years ago. 
They tell me here that Colonel Gaddafi has lost control of all of the eastern half of the country, and he hasn't just lost the people. He's lost the armed forces, the army here, and the police, although there are reports tonight of an attempt by him to regain one of the airfields in this area. Christopher, how will you remember him? I, I knew John for, for, what, 25 years. Um, if I wanted, especially on the Middle East, and don't, let's not forget he was in Washington, he was at the United Nations, uh, he was a good defence correspondent. Uh, if I wanted a calm, collected, wise interpretation of what was going on in the Middle East, including Iran, John Lyon was your man. But also, if I wanted a damn good meal, absolutely <laughs> wonderful cook. I mean, he was a you know celebrity chef standard, mm. and a wonderful musician, tremendous uh, uh, pianist, and an orchestral uh, bassoonist of all things. Mm. Um, great Ma guy. Michael, did you ever have much to do with him? Oh yes, yeah. I mean, not as much as Christopher, but I remember him as a. He was dispassionate. He was professional, and he was humane. And he, he had that blend of qualities which makes for a great correspondent. He'd be much missed. So, Christopher, if he were reporting on this programme today, what would he be talking to us about? Given his contacts in Washington, especially, and the Middle East, I think John would be telling us this. The American intelligence people are telling the Israelis at the moment that on the last airstrike into Syria, they did not zap the uh, uh, land-to-ship missiles as they thought they should and John would be saying watch out there's going to be another airstrike uh, Israeli airstrike into Syria good John. man well that's it for this week my thanks to Professor Michael Clark and to you Christopher Lee if you'd like to join the debate we're on Twitter and you can tweet us at BFBS Sitrep remember you can listen again to this week's programme on our website bfbs.com slash sitrep sitrep is back at the same time next week but for now from me Kate Sherbo thanks for listening bye bye for now